Hi, and welcome to the Understanding Autism podcast, where we talk about issues related to those in the autism and greater neuroverse community. I'm your co-host, Brett Thayer. And I am Nicole Kabilis. In today's episode, we are going to talk about why people on the autism spectrum stim. For those of you that don't know what stimming is, it's repetitive movements that help regulate emotions or express them. This is done to regulate overstimulation, understimulation, pain reduction, managing emotions, and improving focus. Okay, so in examples of stimming behavior, and this goes to really the, um, it's one of the more noticeable autistic behaviors, and so there's a lot of different kinds of stimming. For example, there's visual, watching something spin or wiggling your figures in front of your face, auditory, whistling, repeating words or phrases, humming, clapping, listening to the same song over and over again. Vestibular is jumping up and down, rocking while sitting or standing or arching your back, proprioceptive, head banging, muscle clenching, hand flapping, walking on tiptoes, cracking knuckles, olfactory, smelling objects or people, gestation, chewing on something, and tactile, touring hair, hair pulling, biting nails, pinching, picking, rubbing, biting, or scratching your skin. And then although anyone can stim, it's a very signature autistic behavior, which, of course, leads to a lack of understanding and stereotypes. Mm -hmm. So in today's episode, we're going to talk about the neurological reason why people with autism stim, what the difference between stimming and fidgeting is, the benefits of stimming, why stimming is restricted or discouraged, and how stimming can be culturally acceptable. The neurological reason for stimming is actually pretty straightforward. Uh, when you stim, you're releasing beta endorphins, which causes feelings of pleasure. This is why stimming is used to regulate the nervous system and express pent-up emotions. And then it kind of leads us to what is the difference between stimming and fidgeting? And they're very similar. Most people assume that they're one and the same kind of thing, and there's very overlapping mechanisms and the reasons why people do this. So there's many lists that describe fidgeting and stimming and behaviors, and they're virtually the same. Uh, neurotypical people wrongly assume that only people with autism stim, while those without these diagnoses, such as people on ADHD, fidget. So another wrong assumption is that fidgeting is associated with focus and attention, whereas stimming is only associated with emotional regulation. So both stimming and fidgeting have been considered to be socially inappropriate behaviors, but there are socially acceptable ways to stim and fidget. Brett, as a teacher, what do you think are socially acceptable ways to stim and fidget? And how do you think a teacher that is also a parent of a neurodiverse child sees stimming or fidgeting differently than other classroom teachers? Okay, so as, as a classroom teacher, you see kids stimming and fidgeting all the time. Are you necessarily associating that those are kids on the spectrum? Not necessarily. I mean, I guess one reason to answer your question is that since my child is on the spectrum, I just saw it as a natural occurrence that many kids do, right? And so um, some, some ways that people stim or fidget, um, tapping on the table or on the desk, spinning their pencils or having fidget spinners, um, or I found that kids often kind of lean forward in their desk and then underneath the desk, their hands are like going crazy, right? Which is, I thought, a, a good way to 
to handle kind of a stressful situation or a stressful convict um, topic that we are talking about, for example, um, without having a, a great deal of notice of that particular behavior. Okay, so Nicole, what is your perspective? On stimming stim and fidgeting in the classroom? Stimming, yeah, stimming and fidgeting in the classroom. There are certain stimming behaviors that teachers might have more tolerance for than others. So what I've noticed as a more as an educator than maybe as a student is that teachers might be more flexible and patient with the stims of a person with significant special needs, but might get frustrated with a student on the mild, moderate end of the autism spectrum that stims. But that might depend on how loud and distracting the stimming is and whether or not stimming is mentioned in the student's behavior plan or IEP. That's a As good someone, point. Because, yeah, I'm sorry. Just oh, yeah. Go, no, no, no. Go ahead. Get a, You know, sometimes as teachers, if we don't have an IEP on a kid or a student, then we don't know to necessarily modify or offer those modifications of behavior. That's why it's so important to have that communication with your teacher to say, this is what my child needs. Um, and this is what, what are some ways to problem solve how those needs can be met? Yeah, but I think what's hard about that is you do have parents that are very protective of their child not having their autism noticed by other people. Oh, for sure. So they may not want to disclose that to mm -hmm. their teacher, or they might uh, discourage the student from stimming openly. And I think what is tricky about that is the student might experience a lot of stress and anxiety about wanting to stim as a form of regulation, um, but it's being bottled up. And then the other issue is that the student might not even know that stimming is an option for regulation. So mm. I guess the way that I will look at it is in an ideal world, if a teacher can get it, a little bit of advance notice that that's what the student is doing and why it's doing it, then wouldn't we all get along better in the world? But I think there's so much stigma and so much internalized mm -hmm. ableism around openly stimming that I think there can be a lot of barriers for parents and people with autism to even communicate with teachers. And there's also the other side of the coin where there can be all of this communication to teachers. There can be something in the IP. And there are just some teachers who don't care and don't even want to meet the student where they're at and feel like they want to regulate that behavior so that they can focus. And it's, and it's more about the teacher being able to regulate themselves and run the classroom than it is about understanding that that's what the student needs in order to function in the classroom environment. Yeah, those are good points. Yeah. So for me, as someone that stims and fidgets, I don't have an issue with a student that needs to do those things to regulate. I tend to find it really distracting if there is more than one student audibly stimming or walking around the classroom. And that has more to do with my processing speed and my attention to detail instruction rather than getting frustrated with the behavior. So an example of this is in March of 2019, I was student teaching at a Waldorf charter school. And it's not that I had confirmation that most of the students had ADHD or undiagnosed ADHD. A lot of the students did a lot of 
stimming behaviors. There were students who needed to walk around the room. There were students that verbally stimmed. Uh, there were students that fidgeted. And I think for me, what I found really difficult is like, if there's one student that fidgets or stims, um, I can kind of tune it out and give that student space. When it's the majority of the students that do that, it it kind of throws off my focus a little bit as a neurodiverse person. Um, because for me as a teacher, I'm very hyper-focused and very detail-oriented. I think part of it too is that the age group of these kids, they're like probably about 10 to 12 years old. So then there's there's kind of a learning curve on my end of I need to talk at their age level rather than being um, talking like you would in a college environment, if you will. And so I, I look at it less as um, judgment or criticism of the students and more as these are my limitations and struggles as a neurodiverse teacher. Mm -hmm providing space and support to students who need to regulate in ways that might trigger some of my sensory distractions and my yeah. sensory agitations. So, and I think really the solution to that is it just comes down to those neurodiverse teachers getting better skills that suit mm -hmm. a predominantly neurodiverse class. Yeah. Um, and I can I can tell you that if I had a classroom of thirty kids and every kid had a spinner, I would go crazy. Just saying. And I don't feel like fidget spinners make a ton of noise, but they don't. But then it's like it it becomes a thing, right? Yeah. And they're they're more interested in the fidget spinner than what I'm talking about, which is not acceptable. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of fidget spinners, so I I did buy fidget toys for my classroom. And the goal of that was to have them be an option for my neurodiverse students. I noticed that if I had a, a student with special needs that was in a significant amount of distress, if I gave them my personal fidget toy, they immediately calmed down and, and helped to focus. And I didn't want to get into the habit of giving my own fidget toys to students because I didn't want mm. them making off with them. So I'm like, all right, I'll, right. I'll you know buy some fidget toys. So the problem with this, and really it ended up being a problem for only one of my classes, but when my neurotypical students found out that I had a bucket of fidget toys, they wanted to use them. And I think that when you're neurodiverse and you kind of are taught about how to use a fidget toy as a way to regulate, you know, you, you're able to sit in a classroom and you can fidget and you can maintain focus. But neurotypical students don't always know how to do that. They're kind of enamored by the toy. So mm. the toy, in my experience, the toy becomes a huge distraction for neurotypical students. And I guess I should have thought about this in hindsight, but fidget toys are not super practical to use in an art class because yeah, I'd like have a, I'd have a student like, maybe using an infinity cube and here they are using both of their hands to open and close the infinity cube and they're not drawing, painting or sculpting. Right. And especially if you're in like pottery, like it's super messy. So in the back of my mind, I'm like that all the more reason why the fidget toys are not helpful for these neurotypical students because they're not even doing the work that's required in my right. class. Right. I think um, that's every, every, uh, teacher's concern 
is that, well, if I provide, you know, this to students, then uh, they're going to be so distracted that we're not going to get any learning done. Right. And I think that's why I sort of gatekept my fidget toys and only let people that were neurodiverse know about them. Um, but of course, when you walk up to the kid and it's like, here's the fidget toy, then everybody else gets curious and they're like, well, I want one and I exactly. want one. And and I, there was a fidget toy I had. It was like a, it was a football stress squeeze ball. And of course these boys, they grab the football, they're mm -hmm. throwing it across the room to each other. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, it totally defeats the purpose right. of the fidget. So, right. so I think that like, I'm not opposed to like a neurotypical student exploring what a fidget toy is, especially if they might have an undiagnosed neurodiverse trait. However, I think there's a little bit of education that comes with what is a what is an appropriate and inappropriate use of the fidget in the classroom. And I think it's it's on the teacher to plan in advance. And I think it's also I a I think it's also an age appropriate thing and also subject mm -hmm. appropriate as well. Um, and I think what's hard about art is when you have students who just don't get engrossed in the art making process and you have like a 90 minute class, they use the fidget toy as an escape. So mm -hmm. again, I think it's, it's up to the teacher's discretion. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that again, there needs to be a little bit of a, an educational discussion of, you know, if you're going to use it, this is how you do it. And if right. you're not using it appropriately, I'm going to take it away. Right. Um, and on that note, I've I've never had to confiscate fidget toys from my neurodiverse students. I have for my neurotypical students. Of course. Um, of course. <laughs> and you know, again, the the fidget toys that I'm confiscating are my classroom fidget toys. It's not like mm -hmm. I'm confiscating something personal. Right. And even my neurodiverse students rarely, if ever, bring their own fidget toys to my classroom. Um, yeah. So just to kind of reiterate the point, like you don't want to bring out something that you're inevitably going to have to confiscate and that just creates a distraction. And then that creates some, I don't know, anger and judgment on the student's end. But, and frustration for sure. Yeah, definitely. All right. So given all that, you know, there are benefits to stimming when increased focus and attentiveness um, soothing and regulating emotions, um, or expressing pent up emotions, which is, you know, important for those on the spectrum, because typically those on the spectrum have troubles, um, expressing their own emotions. Right. And so seeing somebody, um, doing stemming is an indication that they're going through some stress or something's going on, which is an opportunity to perhaps pull them aside. It, it all depends on what this is. Right. And, um, pull them aside, give them some space, maybe have them um, take a break, go for a walk, get a drink, come back, you know, if something is um, physically taxing or emotionally taxing for that child. Mm -hmm. So Brett, does Josh, your son, stim? If so, so what, are, what are his favorite stims to do? Yeah, so in the beginning, I mean, this was more clear in the beginning um, when he was younger, he would definitely tense up, like his whole body would like, tense up and then he would have this like really awkward smile thing like I did something wrong kind of posture and but a lot of hand wringling and a lot of lot of physical kind of um 
manifestations of stimming. Mm -hmm. As okay. a neurotypical person, have you ever tried to stim or fidget? And if so, how does it make you feel? Well, I, I do this all the time. I just don't realize that I'm doing it. Um, so a lot of times if I'm, if I'm engaging in something and if I need to concentrate, uh, a common thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to pick up a marker or a pencil and I'm going to wiggle it between my fingers or, you know, I might tap on something um, or I'm going to, um, I don't know, listen to music. That was one of the, 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 the stimming processes, right? Is listening to the same song over and over again. That helps me concentrate actually. Cool. Okay. And how about, how about you? Have you ever tried to stim and how does that make you feel? So when I was originally taking my notes for this podcast, I was like, I don't think I've ever really stim before, uh, before I was an adult. And then when I was looking over the list, I was like, wait a minute, I do that. Mm -hmm. I do mm -hmm. that. <laughs> and I've been doing those things since I was a kid. So um, one of the things that, well, so I, I'm a big toe walker. Um, mm. We have a running joke in our family. I have really muscular calves. And everyone's like, oh, what, what kind of exercise do you do? I said, I've been walking on my toes for 31 years. Okay. <laughs> and so, yeah. And so I guess like, I'm not a big toe walker, like, you know, usually if I'm walking, my feet are on the ground, but I do mm. notice when I take stairs or when I run, uh, mm. I go toe to heel than the other way around. Mm -hmm. I don't know if part of it is like, I, I, don't, I can't even really explain why that feels satisfying to do. I think there's also another part of me that's like, I have this ego about my muscular calves and I'm like... Well, if this is the way it's going to like help me look muscular, why not okay. keep doing it? Um, yeah, sure. Why not? Uh, so I guess another thing, I, I also um, listen to music repetitively over and over. And I think for me, the reason I do that is is different. Um, I engaged in a lot of make-believe play. And I think in, mm. as an adult, I still do that. And a big part of it is it, it helps my creative process. So... There was a period in my life where I was really interested in writing young adult fiction. Mm -hmm. And when I was even younger, I wanted to write comic books. So I would replay songs over and over as a way to sort of get into the mood of the story that I wanted to write mm -hmm. and being able to embody that through movement, through acting things out or just playing things out in my head really helped me out. So I guess like... In my mind, I knew it was an autistic behavior, but I didn't think it was stimming until now. Um, and then the other thing that I do in association with that is is I run back and forth between walls. I've been doing this since I was little. It drives my parents nuts because I leave like dirty handprints all over my on the walls. It also drives my husband nuts a bit too, but it's like... I think, again, in some ways, like that rapid movement of like mm -hmm. running between walls helps my creative process, because mm -hmm. if I'm sitting down and I'm getting pumped up by the music, I, mm -hmm. it, it feels restrictive to sit. So if I'm running back and forth, it gets the creative juices flowing. But on the other hand, I think it's also maybe an expression of emotion, like if I'm getting excited by the thing that I'm Mm -hmm. doing make-believe with or I'm getting hyped by the song the mm -hmm. running back and forth is like this purge of excitement okay um so I definitely 
I definitely think that that is that is an uh, a lifelong stem, and mm. I, I've definitely had it's drawn attention. <laughs> just a bit, just a bit. Yeah, yeah. I I remember I I did it once in my apartment, and a neighbor of mine saw me, and he's like, "What are you doing?" And I didn't like disclose that I was autistic. I was like, "Oh, this is part of my creative process." And we were in art school, mm-hmm. um, and he kind of just took it for what it was. But it's sure. just funny how like when you do it, you don't think people are going to look at you and pay attention, but they do. And then you kind of just have to laugh it off and be like, yeah, this is who I am. Like Mm -hmm. just kind of have like a a good sense of humor about yourself. Um, Besides that, I, I, I guess I didn't really feel like I was a constant stimmer other than those behaviors as a kid. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if that came from a belief that stimming would expose me as an autistic person or if I genuinely didn't have a biological need to stim. I do think as a kid, I I did the head banging. I would imagine there's probably like some stimming behavior I had before my diagnosis because usually those stims cue parents on to thinking that they might have autism. Oh, um, I actually think I had a lot more meltdown behaviors and mm. that was probably what tipped my parents off. Um, but I think that you know, even during a meltdown, there are there are stimming behaviors you do when you're calm and there are stimming behaviors you do when you're in distress. So mm-hmm. I would imagine that there was a combination of both. So, yeah, so really, like, it wasn't something that I explored. And I guess with this whole narrative that I had from, like, kindergarten until my adulthood, thinking that I, you know, was over a lot of autistic struggles and I say over with air quotes. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know. I guess it was just this thought of maybe that doesn't resonate with me. But then when I started my first year of teaching and that was three and a half years ago, I started to stim as a form of stress management. Mm-hmm. And I would mostly do hand flapping. I really enjoy the hand flapping. I would, of course, do it alone in my house or in my car. Mm-hmm. And as somebody who's done a lot of self-regula- self-regulation using yoga, mindfulness, uh, Reiki, you know, kind of those practices, I felt like stimming was a different type of stress release. And what I really liked about it is not only did it give me that release, but it also allowed me to feel liberated in my autistic expression. So I guess like when I first tried stimming, um, when I was anxious, I was like, I'm going to try this because I know most people like it. And then when I started doing it, it was like, wow, this feels awesome. Why didn't I consider trying this before? And then Mm -hmm. once you do it, you can't go back to it. Okay, so um, you have you have some fidget toys that you like, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so that was kind of the other thing. It's like when I started having fidget toys in my classroom, I actually think what really started it is sometimes when we do parent-teacher conferences, the special needs department will provide fidget toys to the staff. Oh, and really? so, yeah, so, and, and actually at, at my previous school, the school is known to do senior projects. So the seniors Mm. spend an entire year doing research on something that they're passionate about or 
a hobby mm -hmm. or something that they want to do professionally. And then like they presented at the project? end of the Yeah, that... basically a capstone. Okay. And there was one year where there was a student who did hers on occupational therapy. So mm -hmm. she gave me and the other teacher like Play-Doh and kinetic sand. And so I think it was, I think the fidgeting or the freedom to explore fidgeting really started because fidget toys were just so easily accessible in a school. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I would pick it up and I would explore it. I'm like, oh, I, I really like this. And then there was a YouTuber that I was listening to called Nerdy Crafter. She reviews um, crafts and she reviews fidget. She has ADHD. So one of her big claim to fames on her channel is she'll review fidget toys. So I'm discovering all these different fidget toys from her. So I'm like, hmm, I'm curious. So I I put in an order. The funny thing is if you spend like $20 on Amazon, you get like a comical amount of fidget toys, all sorts of different fidget toys. You get extra fidget toys. So I'm mm -hmm. like, all right, well, I'm only going to use one of this. I'll donate the rest to my school. Mm -hmm. And I I I I have my favorites. Um there's four that I carry around in my purse. I have the the poppet, which I think most people know what that looks like. The chain fidget, the wacky tracks, which kind of looks like a like a kinetic snake, mm -hmm. and the infinity cube. And what I really like about all the fidgets that I use regularly is they're fairly quiet. They'll make a little bit of noise, but compared to like the poppet tube where mm. the whole fidget is all about sound. Um, mm. I really like the fidgets that I'm able to use in, you know, meetings, in lectures. And I've openly fidgeted in front of my coworkers, in front of administrators, and nobody really seemed to have an issue with it. And I, and I think it goes back to this advantage of working in an educational environment mm. when we are able to recognize that students just need that form of self-regulation in order to focus. We're a little more accepting when we also need that in staff meetings. Granted, I was probably the the only teacher that was fidgeting, but you know, nobody asked questions. Nobody was like, oh, that's annoying. I would just do it. And I usually would do it under the table. So right, um, right. yeah. The the other thing I'll add to, so one of my forms of stress regulation is emotional freedom tapping. And it's basically uh you you tap certain acupressure points on your body as a way mm -hmm. to release stress. So part of it is recognizing how the stressor sits in your body and then mm -hmm. setting an affirmation, like a positive affirmation that gets that stressor out. Right. And Emotional freedom tapping isn't stimming, but mm. people have seen me do emotional freedom tapping in my car and they think it's stimming. And so usually what happens is if somebody sees me do EFT, they'll come mm. up to me and they'll be like, what were you doing? And I hate to say it, it, it does kind of out me as being autistic. I don't mind you know, I don't mind right. having a conversation with my fellow educators and say, this is what I'm doing. This is why I do it. This is how it relates to my autism. Um, but I find it interesting that like, if I'm taking my fingers and I'm tapping my chest mm -hmm. in, in a 
maybe uneducated neurotypical person's mind, it's so similar to like the the stereotypical hand flapping against your chest that mm. people with special needs do. So I think that's why they create that connection and they go, oh, that's really unusual. But emotional freedom tapping is a really common form of somatic stress release. So it's mm -hmm. it's not even like an autistic specific therapy. It's something oh, that not. anybody can do. But I think mm -hmm. it's, again, it's like when you see an unusual or, or repetitive behavior, people look at it and go, what are you doing? Right. But it's it's so, a good it's a good therapy and process that individuals can learn how to use when they're in stressful situations. Yeah. Um, I know that my wife has done EFT and faster EFT, so that's definitely something that we could talk about in a future podcast and how effective that is with people on the spectrum. Yeah, definitely. And for anybody who's interested in EFT, the book that really helped me understand it is called How to Heal Your Anxiety When No One Else Can. We'll put that in the show notes. I think it Definitely. is a really fantastic resource for neurodiverse adults to process stress and anxiety. And neurotypical, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, moving on. If there is such a positive impact to stimming, why do parents, teachers, and caregivers want to stop a person with autism from doing so? Well, I think one of the one of the natural instincts is that, oh, you know, everybody's going to know that you're autistic if you do this, right? So it kind of shows them, hey, I'm autistic. I'm flapping my hands right now. And so um, out of kindness or perceived kindness, right, they're going to try to limit this, um, and which could lead to, you know, a student feeling bullied or alienated or rejected. Um, another reason why people might want to try to limit stimming behavior is it's disruptive. We've talked about this in the classroom. If I had, you know, 30 kids with pop-up fidget toys, you know, that, wouldn't, that would not go over well, right? Um, could it negatively impact learning and social engagement with peers and authority figures? And some stems can, you know, frankly be dangerous to the person like the biting and scratching or to other people around them. Mm -hmm. So yeah, even I... with, go ahead. Oh, you know, I want to add to the disruptive thing. I think one of the ways that we can accept stimming in the workplace and in schools, I really genuinely think kids need to learn how to stim in a way that doesn't distract people, because I think that's mm -hmm. where people really have an issue with it. Um, and I think... I don't know, maybe could secondarily lead to the bullying, alienation, or rejection. Um, and I think what I what I notice in my time having been a high school teacher compared to, you know, student teaching at the elementary and middle school level, I think high school students are a little more tactful with their stims. And, you know, some of it might be that self-awareness of not creating a disruptive environment. And oh, other times so. it might it might be because they don't want to out themselves as neurodiverse. But I think kids and preteens, they don't have any kind of conception of I'm going to do this and I have no idea how it affects other people. So right. in saying this, I'm not saying you shouldn't stim because it's distracting to other people, mm -hmm. but I do think it's an important life skill for neurodiverse people, you know, not just people with autism, people with ADHD as well, to learn how to stim in a way that is a little more quiet, a little more mm -hmm. reserved, or 
or if the stim needs to be bigger and more expressive, like say I need to run around the room, mm -hmm. you know, set up an accommodation or self-advocate for that rather than just doing it, you right. know? Um, or like if you need to verbally stim uh, or auditorily stim, can you do that outside? You know, teaching students mm -hmm. like how how do you get that auditory stim satisfaction in a way that is not disrupting mm -hmm. other people's, you know, engagement in social situations and classrooms and workplaces? And, you know, it's really important when you're an adult. And I think, you know, that goes to, um, you know, why people with autism would self-restrict themselves from stimming, right? And so mm -hmm. I think what we're talking about a lot is um, when we talk about behaviors in this podcast, we're really talking about the autistic person having an understanding of themselves, in addition to the neurotypical people having an understanding of um, autistic people in their lives. So what you were just saying um, the the growing awareness that a I need to fidget or stem because it calms me down, it relaxes me. I need this, right? Um, how I how I do this is something I'm going to have to learn over time as more socially um, complex environments emerge, right? Mm -hmm. Because elementary school is different from middle school, middle school is different from high school, high school is different from the workplace, and at each stage requires a different concept of who I am, how do I manage this in, uh, in, a, in a way that meets my needs, but then is not so avert that it causes some unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. I'll also right? add that I'm doing somatic therapy training right now, and mm -hmm. the, the head teacher of the training his name is dr scott lyons he's a he's a former dancer and we have a lot of really good conversations about how you know through the journey from being a kid to an adult you're taught to sit skill still you're thought you're taught to restrict oh, definitely you're you're taught to i think in the process of of learning to sit still learning mm. to be focused learning to not distract others with your body movement you start to have a disconnecting relationship from your body. Mm -hmm. And autistic people already have a disconnect with their body. Mm -hmm. Stimming could be a way to, you know, re-engage that relationship in some way. And and I guess I the reason I want to bring it up is because for us autistic people who have so much internalized ableism that we can't stim, mm -hmm. I think it's important that we give ourselves permission in certain spaces, whether that mm -hmm. is in our private space, in a in a safe interpersonal space, or even if we feel really comfortable to in a professional space, to give ourselves permission to do that because it's very cathartic mm -hmm. and it also allows us to have that somatic relationship with ourselves. So it's it stimming is a really, really important way that we autistic people can have a, a healthy and compassionate relationship with our bodies. So if we live a mm -hmm. life where where we are restricting ourselves, um, we're not learning to be unconditionally loving and accepting mm -hmm. of our neurodiversity if we're not mm -hmm. allowed to stim in it. And especially if we restrict ourselves from doing that. 
No, those are great points. Those are great points. So, so we kind of touched about this with you in talking about whether you as a neurotypical person stim, kind of going a little more broad, do you think neurotypical people stim? I think we do this all the time. Like we talked about um, where people fidget or they spin their pencils. I don't know if you've seen students in your classroom spin the pen. I mean, this was a thing, right? It's, let me spin my pencil so it goes all around my thumb and like, ooh, this is cool. You know, but once the the thing starts stops becoming a thing and everybody does it, I've noticed that in, in my classroom, like when we do something that takes concentration, that kids are going to fidget with their pencils, like they're taking a, a test, for example, they're going to fidget with their pencils, they're going to tap, they're going to spin. And that that's fine. It's not distracting anybody else. They're just, it's a way for them to help them concentrate, right? Um, and so everybody fidgets and stims. So we kind of differentiate on how frequently we do it, but we all do it. And so I think just because that we all do it, that leads to a greater understanding of, oh, somebody on the spectrum might need to do it more, or it's going to look this way. It's going to manifest itself this way, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. In fact, there was an article in Very Well Health that Stimming Outright says that you don't have to be autistic to stim because we all do it. And so another difference that people with autism tend to use more of their body to engage in a stimming motion, where other people might have, you know, a smaller scale movement. So then it becomes, you know, is it subtle versus is it obvious? Yeah, so I want to ask. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, I when you were talking, it made me think about something funny. So my husband mm -hmm. has ADHD and he does the the pencil flipping around his fingers all the time. And both of us have totally different perspectives of our neurodiversity. Mm -hmm. I'm the type of person that's like, hi, I'm Nicole. I'm autistic. Like, right. I'm super open about my autism. He doesn't tell a soul that he has ADHD. Mm -hmm. And we've kind of had these like incongruent views on our neurodiversity, which, you know, not that it's bad. They're both right. valid views. Um, but one of the things that he mentioned when he saw my fidget toys, he goes, why do they have to be so brightly colored? And I was oh, like, well, funny. first off, like, that's how they came. I, I've mm -hmm. never seen. And I think the um, the reason he brought it up is because my my poppet fidget is rainbow colored. Mm. And uh, and I had an infinity cube that was like bright blue. And he's like, he's like, you're drawing attention to the fact that you're fidgeting by having these brightly colored fidgets, which I don't care. Like, right. Also, because I'm an artist, I'm like, I don't care if I have brightly colored fidgets. Like, I mm -hmm. care more about the goal of the fidget rather than, like, how it looks. But for him, who, you know, he's very, he doesn't want to draw attention to his neurodiversity. He's very mm -hmm. uncomfortable with the idea that if I have a really brightly colored fidget toy, it's going to draw attention to me being weird right, or different. Right. And I right. think that's why he's kind of taught himself over the years to use like socially acceptable fidgets like a pencil because it's not going to draw any sort of unwanted attention to the fact that he's neurodiverse. Yeah. And I think that goes to the point where, you know, we, all of us, but, you know, those on the spectrum need to be, you know, having an awareness of what our what our issues are and then and how do we deal with this right in a socially productive way right and and so that just goes to show that there's a, a wide range of spectrums on how we how we handle that 
right? Yeah, some are more comfortable and some are not. Yeah. And there's no right or wrong way. Really, the whole point Absolutely of not. stimming is it makes you feel good. So, you know, going back to my example, if my husband prefers to stim with a pen because mm -hmm. that resonates with him physiologically rather than an infinity cube, that's mm -hmm. fine. Like, sure. just because there are all these different types of fidgets out there doesn't mean that he has to use one. He has to use all of them. He can just use the ones that make sense to him and, and feel mm -hmm. good for movement. Okay. So that leads me to my question, Nicole, do you think stimming should be stopped? And my other question is, what would, how would you feel if someone told you that you couldn't stim at all? Oh, that's a really good question. Well, so I'll just start with, do you think stimming should be stopped? A lot of resources online say that unless the stimming behavior does any sort of harm to your to the person stimming or other people, it shouldn't be stopped or cured. And I really want to emphasize what is considered harm. I think a parent's reaction is, well, if they openly stim, they're going to get bullied. What we're talking about specifically is physical harm. So we were talking about if there's pinching, or if there's biting or hair pulling, like if you're pulling your hair and hair is coming out in clumps on your hands, you know, and, and even then it doesn't mean that that person should never stim at all. It just means what are some healthier stimming activities that you can do that is not going to create harm to yourself or others. Um, but we, we definitely don't want to reinforce this reaction that, you shouldn't stim because you're going to get bullied, you're going to get alienated, your intelligence is going to come into question because that's just reinforcing systemic ableism. And it also creates a feeling of shame for the person with autism that they can't be their authentic selves because of how the outside world perceives them. Um, and then also going back to what I said before, if the stim is physically harmful, that, you know, there are two options. You can either find a new stimming behavior that isn't harmful or just remove the trigger that's causing the stimming. So similarly to how we look at meltdowns, if there is something like something that triggers a certain emotion that then causes the reaction to be stimming, look at what the trigger is. Mm. Um, stimming is not about bad behavior but more about a healthy form of self-regulation. And I think that that's really important for parents, teachers, and caregivers to really notice when they see stemming behavior happen. It's a natural response and punishing stemming is reinforcing autism masking. And we definitely don't wanna do that. When someone with autism is not allowed to stem, it's like they are a pressure cooker without a valve to release the air. Not being allowed to stim can do damage to a person's physical and mental health in the same way that not blinking or breathing would. So can you repeat the second part of your question, Brett? Well, the question was, um, how would you feel if you were told in the workplace that you could not stim? It's funny you ask that because I've actually never been asked to stop my stims. And maybe it's because the only time I've ever really stimmed is in large group settings where I don't feel like people would necessarily notice that's what I'm doing. 
And I guess the only other time that I've ever dimmed would be like if I was having pretty severe anxiety and there's a conflict resolution meeting or there's an accountability meeting with an evaluator, like I'll stim. And in all of those situations, nobody's told me not to do it. Uh, to be really honest, I'm such a headstrong advocate that I feel like if somebody asked me to stop stimming, I would maybe ask them, why do you not want me to stim? Right. Is it because you're uncomfortable with me stimming? Is it mm -hmm. because my stimming is a distraction to other people? So I think that there's there's a twofold response. One part of it is, what is the other person's baseline knowledge of stimming? And how can mm -hmm. I give them an educational conversation about the purpose of stimming? And usually, like, I've, I haven't had people tell me to stop, but I've had people ask me, like, what are you doing? And why are you doing what you're doing? And so usually that that's a good satiator. And then the other part of it is if my stims are distracting, then I can modify that by either moving to a location where I'm not triggering that person or mm -hmm. I alternate the stim. But I do feel very strongly as a very open autistic advocate, I'm not going to not stim. Mm -hmm. And... I'm not going to let somebody else's discomfort with my autism stop me from stimming. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think being, yeah, the ed be, I, I just respond to it like an advocate and an educator. Mm -hmm. And not that I'm going to pick a fight and say, no, you right. know, screw you. You don't understand me. I think it's coming to a, a, a meeting in the middle mm -hmm. or how can both of us compromise? But I feel very strongly I'm not gonna I'm not gonna practice autism masking by not stimming because of somebody's discomfort because that's just reinforcing uh, interpersonal ableism, my own internalized ableism, systemic ableism, and how are we gonna shift out of that if we don't have a proactive conversation about what stimming is and why it benefits that person and how the neurotypical person can build a little more tolerance and compassion and open-mindedness towards that behavior. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So how can stimming be more culturally acceptable in schools and in the workplace? Nice segue, right? So this is, this is <laughs> how we, we move into, okay, so what are some solutions? So obviously, you know, the school and workplace accommodations, you know, and that's, that's if a person is comfortable with disclosing that they have autism, explaining why stemming is beneficial for a more productive work environment. Um, and it might, may also be worth discussing with the school caseworker or teacher or your boss on what would be considered to be an acceptable stim, right? If that, again, if the person feels comfortable in that conversation, making sure that the stims are not disruptive or uh, to the productivity of yourself and others. And it's, it's also good. We talked about this in other episodes where find friends and roommates and significant others that are comfortable with you stimming, right? This prevents the anxiety and extreme pressure to mask your autism all the time. We talked about how important it is to have that safe space where you can be your, your neurodiverse self. Also having discussions, educational awareness for the benefits of stimming that you were talking about, Nicole, especially if it relates to better performance on the job or in the school or in the classroom. 
Do not make stimming something that is treated as an other. This is something we all do. This is not something that should be so out there that it requires some special changes to happen. And teachers should have and would be nice to have some more tools to explain to students why stimming is acceptable and even teaching other not neurotypical kids that we all do it mm-hmm. without outing the person with autism and teaching patience and tolerance for other people in our classroom. Although I would say if I had 30 kids with kazoos, right, and saying that this is, has to happen, like, no, no, we're going to find a different way. Yeah, and I think what's hard when you have a, a class that has majority neurodiverse students, what somebody does to stim as a form of self-regulation could actually trigger somebody else's sensory overwhelm. Mm. So I've had, like, to go back to the example of the Waldorf Charter School art class that I worked in with the fourth through sixth graders, mm-hmm. I had students that would, like, verbally stim and they'd, like, tap their hands and they'd walk around the room. And then you had other students who were just so overstimulated and so distracted by everything that it was mm. like the they would feed off of each other. Great. So one kid's stim would feed, like if say if that kid had ADHD and they get distracted mm. easily, well, they're not focused on me. They're focused on the kid who's stimming. Right. And then you have other kids who just get agitated because they are constantly being surrounded by distracting stimuli. They're exerting so much energy to focus on the teacher. And then you've got that kid standing next to you, like doing mouth popping or whatever, and then they're Mm going to lose it. So that's a huge struggle for teachers. Like, how do you, how do you manage that? And I think the solution is part of it is an individual level of Mm -hmm. like understanding what that kid needs, why they're stimming, why, why the stimming is specifically uh, verbal or auditory or whatever. And then you also have to look at it on a macro level and ask yourself, what does the classroom need? And mm. if everybody needs to stim, like, do we need a stim break? You know, right, right. does this group of kids need a quiet space? Do these group of kids need a noisy space? Like, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's the best way um, to tackle it because if you just hyper focus on like one kid at a time mm-hmm. it, it's it's going to drive you nuts as a teacher in my opinion it would drive no, me nuts as an autistic person right no i think that you made some excellent points yeah um related to to your previous point about um teaching patience and tolerance in students so i have a story related to this so all of which has to do with this waldorf charter school so in my fourth grade class, so the the age group I was working with was fourth grade to eighth grade. And in the fourth grade class, I had a student with autism and his homeroom teacher had told me that his mom had not told him that he was autistic and she did not want it, any of his peers to know that he was autistic. Mm-hmm. Yet he had a lot of verbal and movement stims that the other students noticed. So there was a girl that came up to me and politely asked if I could tell the boy to stop mumbling because it was Mm. annoying her. Mm -hmm. What do you do as a teacher? And especially like as an autistic teacher who totally understands like Mm -hmm. why that kid is doing what what he's doing. It's like, I'm not going to ask him to stop, but I also don't want to be like, well, he's autistic. 
And you need to right. have more sympathy because that can go a whole multitude of problematic ways. So right. the first thing I did is just told myself, you're not going to disclose that the boy has autism, especially mm -hmm. considering he didn't even know he had autism. So like, right, right. that's a whole, like, just sideswipe that. So I explained to her that when you're making art, like some people hum or they talk to themselves as a way to help them focus on their artwork. And I normalized this, not that my students knew that I had autism, but I said, you know, hey, I do that when I make artwork. Um, you know, some some people, when they are working on a task, they'll say, step one, we're going to do this. Step two, do that. And that that external verbalizing sets that intention for doing the steps. I can't mm. tell you how many people sing or hum mm. when mm. they're making art. Um, I mean... I don't know if I'm alone in this, but like sometimes if I'm in a really goofy mood, I'm just doing all sorts of strange voices and laughing mm -hmm. at myself while I'm making mm -hmm. artwork because because it's such a serious, like focused kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So if I'm just kind of letting loose and and especially if I'm doing realism, like sometimes just having that moment to be goofy and loose really helps. So it was really important for me to just normalize that for some people uh having those behaviors is an important part of their artistic process and i think waldorf schools sort of support that process oriented way of making art as well so when i kind of explained it that way the girl seemed open more mind uh open minded to the stimming and what was even more interesting is that she sat down next to the boy and started humming alongside him Okay. Luckily, the boy didn't seem bothered by the girl joining in with him. I think the, I could see maybe another perspective of like, here's this boy humming as a form of self-regulation, probably thinking in his mind, like nobody else can hear me or he's right. in his own world. And right. here's this girl who sits down next to her, him and starts humming. I could see like an autistic kid being like, why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. I didn't ask you to join in with me. But on the flip side, I think what I felt the boy was feeling is, oh, my behavior is acceptable and I'm not being alienated for it. In fact, somebody's joining in. So I'm not saying like, hey, go join him. I mean, I think right. it's just what kids do right. as they're exploring, like, how do I connect with somebody? But yeah, it's such a it's such a complicated thing when you know, kids are curious or, or kids are uncomfortable with stimming, um, and how they can be curious in a way that doesn't make the autistic person feel uncomfortable or that their personal mm -hmm. space is violated or that, um, that, that they have to confront with that insecurity of like, I'm getting attention for this thing that identifies me as autistic or, you know, what are my parents going to think? So, yeah, it's really tricky, and I don't know if I have a, a black and white answer. I think the teacher just kind of has to take it one case at a time. But I do think it's really important to normalize the stimming in the context of what is the group activity and how is that beneficial, and also how everybody does it. Right, right. Again, education and understanding is the core of what we're doing with this podcast. Mm-hmm. 
Do you have any teaching stories related to stimming? Not really anything specific, but um, going into what you were saying, and, and we talked about in a previous episode, you know, accommodation for one student maybe works out for everybody. So one way that I allowed um, people on the spectrum, because this was an accommodation for this child in my classroom on the spectrum, that if we were doing individual work, that this child would be able to take out their headphones and listen to music. And so that became an accommodation for everybody. And so everybody liked individual work because why? Because they could listen to their music and right. And so um, the person on spectrum felt that, you know, his needs were being met and everybody got to listen to music and it was a happy, productive place. So that's yeah. just one example. Yeah. I, I was actually thinking like if, if you're an elementary teacher, like that's the example I'm thinking specifically, I think the trap of trying to normalize stimming is, you know, let's say there's a kid who, like I said, you know, they hum while they're making mm -hmm. art. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if, if the teacher goes, okay, class, like, let's, let's all try humming and making art and seeing how we feel. And let's see what the process is. And, mm -hmm. and on the one hand, I could see the autistic child feeling like, oh, like, cool. Like this, this, thing that I do by myself is something that I can share with my peers. And that that can be uh, kind of like what you said, a way to normalize it and not make it weird or other. But on the other hand, if the teacher is drawing it, so it, not necessarily saying, hey, yeah. so-and-so is autistic, but if they're right. drawing attention to the behavior and saying, okay, guys, Let's all do this behavior together as a way to normalize it. Like right, right, right. that kid is going to feel so called out and mm -hmm. so like, mm -hmm. I don't know, just just uncomfortable with like this thing that they know is their thing being drawn attention to by all of these people who are chances are not going to be doing that behavior because of their own authentic biological urges. They're like, oh, a teacher told me to do this, so I'm going to do it. Right. And and then the other issue with it, too, is like sometimes stimming behavior is a very private, like uh, individuated thing. I'm not going around coming up to my friends and my husband being like, hey, you want a hand flap together? Like, right, right, right. So, so that's kind of the other trap that teachers can get into is like if they're trying to norm that the behavior is OK. Mm -hmm. um, that autistic child might not want to stim with other people or feel right. like, you know, oh, I'm going to go into this environment and, hey, we're all going to flap our hands in the open or, hey, we're going to take our infinity cubes and, mm -hmm. and fidget. And then the other, there's the other part of it too, where it's like, it, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about how there's a certain level of education when it comes to how you stim and fidget in a way that's not distracting. So it's like, if there's a kid who is being extremely disruptive because he's neurotypical and doesn't know how to fidget. And mm -hmm. then the fidget toys confiscated, like how does that make the autistic person feel? Like they probably don't want to stim openly or stim at all right, right. because here are all these neurotypical kids who have no understanding of what the purpose of stimming and fidgeting is. And they're, it's being normed by a, a neurotypical teacher that also doesn't know how to make right. it acceptable in a way that doesn't right. make it awkward for the students. So 
I, again, I think kind of like what you said earlier, I think it's a, it's a case by case basis sort of thing. And I would say like, don't, if you're a teacher, like don't draw attention to the behavior, like have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the person. Mm -hmm. And if, and if uh, here's another idea, if there's a student who, you know, expresses discomfort or is curious, ask the child with autism, like, how would you like me to approach this? Sure. So that, you know, in your good intentioned way of trying to support the student, you're not accidentally making them feel uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. Anyway. And I, and I think, you know, the other ways, I mean, as I, I taught high school, so a lot of the kids who are on a spectrum or have ADHD, you know, had the fidget spinners. Now, if, again, the, the example is that we're all taking a test or they're asked to concentrate the fidget spinners underneath the desk. They're leaning over the desk. They're looking at the test, right? And their hands are underneath the desk, and they have their fidget spinner, right? That's mm -hmm. perfectly acceptable. Nobody can seize it. it. It's not a distraction, and yet that's helping them relate, regulate their emotions or their behavior in some way, mm -hmm. which kind of goes into the summary of the podcast. All right, so we've talked about a lot of different things, including neurological reasons why people with autism stim, the difference between stimming and fidgeting. Um, we've gone over the benefits of stimming, uh, why stimming is restricted or discouraged uh, oftentimes, but then how stimming can be culturally accessible. All right, so- Acceptable, not yep. accessible. Uh, stimming acceptable. is always accessible. <laughs> it's not always acceptable. True statement. All right, next <laughs> week's episode, explaining autistic meltdowns and shutdowns. I think we're going to have a lot to say about that. Yeah, part of the episode with with episode five as well is we're going to talk about uh, self-harming behaviors as well. So yeah, three really loaded topics, and those are probably the most signature autistic behaviors. So it'll be, it'll be an interesting in-depth episode for sure. Absolutely. You can follow Understanding Autism on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to receive updates on our upcoming podcast episodes. I also make artwork and poetry to promote each episode. Subscribe to Understanding Autism on YouTube and listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, etc. Like, subscribe, and leave a comment. If you have questions for us, post them on our Facebook group or email us at brettandnicole at understandingautism.info. You can also visit our website, which is understandingautism.info. All right. Thank you for tuning in and we will see you next week. Until then, I'm Brett Thayer. And I'm Nicole Cabellas. Bye.